Hebrews chapter number one is where we're going to be this morning. Hebrews chapter number one. If you're here today, uh, you are here for sermon two out of two in the book of Hebrews. So you're really getting in on the ground floor. Uh, We're starting with verse number one today. We did an introduction last Sunday explaining kind of what Hebrews is all about, giving us an idea of why this letter was written, really giving us no idea of who wrote it, but at least we tried to get some information on that. Uh, We know it was someone who knew the Lord, of course, was very familiar with the Old Testament scripture, someone who loved Jesus dearly. And we're going to cover the first three verses this morning. That's not very much. He says so much in these first three verses. It's not even the end of the full sentence. The first sentence is verses one through four. But he does, he's an expert in communication, so the end of his first sentence transitions into the next subject matter for the rest of the passage, which is talking about how that Jesus is better even than angels. But we aren't going to cover that this morning. We're going to cover just the first three verses. So if you'll follow along, I'll read it, then I'll have a word of prayer, and then we'll get into the sermon this morning. In Hebrews chapter number 1, verse number 1, God who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, When he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. And we won't cover this verse, but to finish the sentence, we'll read verse 4 as well. Being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the songs. We thank you for the message, the truth of these songs. Lord, may they inspire us just to love you more to seek you, to want you, to know you, to commune with you. Father, and I pray as we open up the beginning of this book, what a tremendous, tremendous word that you've preserved for us. Thank you for giving us this. I pray it'll lift our hearts and minds up to you, see you for who you are, that you'll be exalted and glorified in our mind, that Jesus would be lifted up for who he is as we read this passage. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Jesus is shown here in the first three verses of Hebrews chapter 1 as the revealer of God. The word revelation, according to the current Oxford Dictionary, means this, the divine or supernatural disclosure to humans of something related to human existence or the world. I'm going to borrow two words from that definition and make a super short, simple one for all of us here this morning. You ready? Divine disclosure. That's what revelation is. is, In this sense, is divine disclosure. Disclosure. God is revealing something to us that was not otherwise known. Now, the Bible indicates there are two basic types of revelation. You could probably put a bunch of subcategories to it if you wanted, but there's really just two basic types of revelation. First, God has spoken to us in nature. We call that general revelation, right? You remember Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glories of God, the earth showeth forth his handiwork, day unto day uttereth speech, night unto night showeth forth knowledge, there is no speech nor language where his voice is not heard. It's speaking of that, that creation itself testifies to our God, the creator God. Romans 1 talks about God's invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature, his Godhead is clearly seen in that which he has made in Romans 1 verse 20. 
However, as you look around at nature and you see the mountain in its beauty, you uh, watch a plant grow if you're a gardener. And you, I remember with the watermelons we had there this year, the Henry family was doing it. It was fun. I remember how excited little Chloe May was telling me that was a watermelon as big as her thumb. Now, Chloe's a pretty little girl. And so her thumb, not very big. She was pretty excited about that little tiny watermelon. And then watching it grow, they were, and then the kid, they always find something cool to, to compare it to. It's never, you know, it is 7.2 centimeters long, Uncle Nate. It's never like that, you know. It's as big as Timber's head, you know, or something like that. Some other thing to compare it to. Watching the watermelons grow through the year get bigger and bigger, and that's a wonderful thing. And we can test, we can learn from that, right? We can learn from the mountains, we can learn from trees, we can learn from plants, we can learn from anatomy. One of my favorite things about going through paramedic school is that I got to learn through the human anatomy and physiology. I'm telling you what, if you ever want to just be in awe of your creator, study the human body. It blows, it'll blow your mind, just that there had to be a creator for this. And so uh, you say, I can learn a little bit about God that way. That's true. You can learn about his growing watermelon. You say, obviously, there was a creator. Obviously, somebody had to put all this together. This is not just some random chaotic thing. I mean, to say that this evolved on its own is as silly as taking a giant barrel of Tannerite, going to a junkyard, shooting the thing, and kaboom, we have three brand new Mercedes come out of that. That doesn't work that way. Logic and order is obviously seen in creation. However, creation alone doesn't reveal to us the entirety of the redemptive plan, does it? You might say, well, there's obviously a creator. You might infer some things from that. Well, if there's a creator, then what did he create me for? Why do I exist? You might be able to ask some good questions and start thinking on them. But until there's been what we call a special revelation that makes sense of the general revelation, you may be left with a lot of Question mark. Well, what is the special revelation? You said the Bible talked about two. Special revelation is a type of revelation that we are looking at in the first three verses of Hebrews today. Special revelation comes from the very mouth of God. That's what special revelation is. Let's go back a ways. We'll skip Adam and Eve, even though they got to hear directly from God. That was kind of a different scenario, right? Then they sinned and the world was plunged into sin. And then we'll go forward a little bit. And uh, God spoke to Noah in a special way, telling him that a flood was going to come. That's pretty special. Isn't that special? God spoke to Noah and told him what would happen in a few hundred years. There will be a flood. Everyone will die. Build yourself a boat. Now, they may have had some type of small pleasure vessels or maybe fishing boats at the time, but they would never have had anything at the level of the ark. And so as he's building the ark, if you say, I'd like to learn more about that, oh, my goodness, go to the Answers in Genesis, type in Creation Museum, Google it. They built a life-size replica, showed you how all the animals could fit. It's incredible. It's not like your, your uh, kitty picture book that you had when you were a kid. It's real. And so uh, they, he built the ark. Special revelation is what caused him to build the ark to rescue all those that would escape the flood. Sadly, very few took God up on his offer to escape the flood. Special revelation came to Abraham. Special revelation came to many of the prophets. Special revelation came through a lot of different means, through dreams and visions, uh, through, again, the prophecies that came forth, sometimes through a voice out of the sky, literally. We'll mention one of those today. I mean, there was a lot of revelation that happened in a special way. But it's all kind of uh, brought under this one banner that's called the Word of God. God's Word coming to us. Okay, why is that special? Well, the reason that's special is because we are finding God's word is that special revelation. And the one person who personified the word of God to be given the title, the word, is Jesus Christ. 
In the beginning was the Word, John chapter 1 and verse 1. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same within the beginning with God. That's who he is. That's who Jesus is. Read all the way through verse 14. You'll have no doubt in your mind is talking about Jesus Christ. Now, if you're going through the New Testament, you'll find kind of like all the epistles, you'll find a formula that goes 9 and 4 and 9. What do you mean? Well, you have the, the nine epistles that were addressed to Christian churches, four letters that were addressed to individuals, and then nine more letters addressed to Jewish Christians. We just threw, went through one of those in our Sunday morning series. The book of James is one of the letters that was addressed specifically to Jewish Christians. Now, it is for all of us today, but original recipients is what we're talking about. Romans introduces the first nine epistles, and it talks about the relationship of the gospel to the moral law. And the appeal is made to the Old Testament prophets throughout that book. The reason I even share that with you, because as you'll see a fun correlation in Hebrews, that Hebrews introduces the last nine epistles, and it discusses the relationship of the gospel uh, of Israel's ritual law, and it talks about the Old Testament priestly ministry. Each of these two groups ends with prophecy. So the first group of nine ends in Thessalonians, where we have the prophecy of the end, end time. And, of course, in, uh, in the last nine, the last book of the Bible is the book of Revelation. So we have the Christ coming in regard to the church and in regard to the Jew. Now, as you're reading the book of Hebrews, remember that this is all cast in the shadow of the temple. Remember, we were talking about the temple quite a bit last week and a lot of the priestly things that would go on there. There's a lot of references to the Old Testament priestly things and the temple. Uh, so all of that's happening. Remember, who this was primarily written to was the Jewish Christian who had given up being a Jew in the orthodox, in the religious sense, and had, remember, they gave up what they believed in. They said, I'm no longer trusting the rituals. I'm no longer trusting Judaism, orthodoxy for my salvation. Instead, I'm turning and I'm putting my trust in Jesus Christ alone. We also pointed out last week that we must do very much the same thing today. You might say, well, hang on a second. I'm not an orthodox Jew. Whatever it is that you are believing in, whether it is a Baptist church, a Catholic church, a Lutheran church, a Mormon church, whether it is just the way that you were raised, whether it's the way your, your grandfather's moral law, whether it's Dr. Phil's moral law, whoever it may be, whatever it is you're trusting in to get you to heaven one day that you make yourself consider yourself a good person, I'm telling you, you must reject that, at least as trusting it for salvation. You can still behave in a moral way for sure, still go to church, that's good. This isn't going to get you to heaven one day. The only way to be made right with God is to turn and put your trust in Jesus Christ alone. We'll see that today at the, uh, in verse number three, is that he's the one that purged us from sin. He's the only one that had the ability to save us. No church can save you. No religious system can save you. Only Jesus can. So this prologue, or the first four verses of Hebrews, if you read it in Greek, there's, it's artfully constructed. There's like... In the first 12 words, five of them start with the same letter. It's, it's very alliterated. It's very beautiful. There's 72 words here. It, it introduces the sermon's central hero. So the entire book of Hebrews is really about one person primarily, and that is Jesus Christ. It talks about his mission, the revelation of him, reconciliation, and his eventual rule. So Christ is the son of God, the agent of God's revelation. Now, I'm not gonna, we're not going to... Uh, point all seven of these out as we go through, but let me just present to you this, this morning, uh, briefly before we get into the text, is there is absolutely no doubt as you read the Bible that Jesus Christ is more than just a good person. As you read the Bible, you will be absolutely assured and convinced that Jesus Christ is none other than God in the flesh. 
and that he wasn't just a good man that lived. Let me give you seven things. Again, I'm not going to point these out again. Uh, he is, first of all, seen in verse 2 as the heir of all things. He is God, that's why. He's the creator of the world. Pretty tough to do as a human, I would say. He is called the radiance of God's glory, which if you're an Old Testament student, you remember the Shekinah glory cloud that would descend out of the temple at certain times? That's the same type of analogy that he's using to talk about Jesus. He's the representation of God's being. Nowhere else, of no one else, as it says that we are the express image of God. We are made in the likeness of his image as human beings, but nowhere is anyone else called the express image of God. He is the sustainer of the world. Kind of like it says in Colossians, by him all things consist, only God. He is the purifier of people's sins. We have always known, even from the Old Testament to today, humans cannot do that. As much as I would want to, I cannot take your sins away. My little boy is one of the most precious things in the world to me. I would easily, gladly, cheerfully give my life if it meant saving his. I'm, I'm not joking. Any of you that are parents, you have absolutely no doubt that that is what you would do for your children. In fact, you don't even have to think about it. It's immediate. I love that little boy. He is amazing. But you realize that I cannot take his sins away. I can't. As much as I want to. I could shed my blood. I could hang on a cross. But it wouldn't take his sins away. Because I'm not God. I'm not the perfect spotless lamb. I can't do it. In fact, as we understand sin and the penalty of sin and that terrible price tag that is carried with that rebellion of, to God, that terrible place called hell that Jesus does talk about, we know it is real. We don't celebrate in it, but we know that is the end doom of those who reject Jesus Christ. We think I would do anything to keep people out of there. I should hope so. But the bummer of it is, in my own ability, I cannot. I can't take away your sin. I can't even take away my son's sin, no matter how hard I try, no matter how much I pray, no matter how much I give, no matter how many rituals I perform, I cannot take away his sin. Only one person is able to take away sin. The Bible spells it out clearly. That is God the Son, Jesus Christ. Which is why it's so important we understand when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. It is only through Jesus that we can have eternal life, only through Jesus. So somebody says, well, I'll get there my own way. What a slap in the face of God himself who suffered on a cross for your sin. You can't get there your own way. I can't get there my own way. We all must come through Jesus. And then lastly, the seventh proof of Christ's deity is that he is the king over all. Uh, on the end of verse 3, he sits down on the right hand of the majesty on high. That's not a position for mortal man. Hebrews begins with this idea of in time past. You saw that he spake in time past. Just like Genesis and the Gospel of John, Hebrews opens with a chronological reference taking people all the way back to the beginning of creation, a scene only you and I can only imagine. Uh, it's just what an incredible time. I remember uh, when I was in high school, there was a debate team. I wasn't on the debate team. I was, uh, I was a little bit young for this particular one. It was the seniors debate team, and I was watching with interest, and uh, we had two groups. One was defending the idea of biological evolution. Uh, so God is exempted from the process. The other group was trying to prove a God uh, uh, created the world, that he did everything just like the Bible said from six days. And I remember the, they were arguing back and forth. They were debating back and forth. And, of course, this, it's a good debate. It's a healthy one. We should have a lot. We should consider the science. And I remember the one guy was, was saying uh, her name was... Uh, Bobby, and her, her last name was Martin, I remember her, and she was the debate team, my brother was on the debate team with her, and, he, and the, the young man looked at her and said, you can't tell me that evolution happened because you weren't there, and before even it was her turn to speak, she just said, well, neither were you, and that shut him up real quick, 
The truth of the matter is none of us were there at the beginning of creation, but we have so much evidence that leads us to believe that there is a designer behind it all. And so we're, we're brought back in time past to before Jesus, before the New Testament, all the way back to the very beginning. Why is this interesting? Why is this uh, compelling to us? Well, because as he talks about Jesus and talks about the gospel message, he doesn't start with Jesus' birth in Bethlehem. I'm going to say, oh, yeah, we're coming up on the Christmas holiday where a lot of people will celebrate the birth of Christ. And it's a wonderful thing to celebrate, even if it wasn't exactly December 25 when he was born. However, consider this. The gospel doesn't begin in Bethlehem. Thought about that? Well, then where does it begin? Oh, I know where it begins. It probably begins at Mount Moriah. You know where the temple was in Jerusalem, where, where Jesus was crucified? And way back when, when Abraham went to sacrifice his son on the top of the mountain, that must be where it began. The gospel doesn't begin at Mount Moriah. Well, where does the gospel begin? It begins all the way in the beginning. When God created the heaven and the earth, in fact, you read Ephesians, you'll find out that God knew before he ever spoke matter into existence, he knew what it would cost him. He knew that it would mean that himself he'd have to separate and, this, and this, the, the second person of the Trinity would, would go down, be wrapped in flesh, live a perfect life, and yes, be slaughtered, be separated from God Almighty. And of course, three days later, rise again, because if he truly is God, he can't stay dead. You realize that, right? That if Jesus was still in the grave, if we went to go visit his grave, we would have nothing to worship. He'd be a man. But he was God. He rose again three days later. He knew that from before time began, and yet he still, because of his great love for us, chose to bring about creation, bring us into existence. One man that said this, the person and work of Christ can only be rightly understood when given proper place at the center of history's meta-narrative. Now, you may not be into philosophy. You may not be understanding a lot of these words, but meta-narrative is the great big backdrop by which we understand all of the other narratives, how we interpret, the lens by which we interpret every other story that we see. And he's talking about the meta-narrative would be that God, that Jesus Christ was the creator of the world. God's saving work in Jesus begins not just during the Roman Empire, but long ago, even in the Old Testament and before. Why is this important, preacher? Jesus isn't the savior of just the first and second centuries. He's the savior of all time. From everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. And he is the savior of all time, from beginning until the end. Another one of the most important assertions made as we get into this text is that God is a speaking God. Looks at God who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake. Aren't you thankful? As you look around and you see general revelation that, yes, there's some beautiful things. I look at this mountain. I look at the river. I look at the hydrologic system. I look at everything. I look at the physiology of human being. I know they're the crea a creator. Aren't you thankful? He's a creator who speaks to us. How terrible would it be if he was a silent God and we wouldn't understand much about him? Because that's one of the things. When I was doubting my faith, I said, Pastor, you did? Absolutely. If you're an honest uh, individual, you'll come to a point where you have to question some things. You have to consider some things. I came to that point. And I was like, is God real or is he just someone my parents told me about? Is he really the creator or, or is Darwin right? I asked myself the real questions, and you should too, by the way. I asked myself the real question that I came to realize through my understanding of science and the research I did, there must be a, a, an intelligent designer. There must be. There's a lot of people out there that will, a lot of scientists out there that will preach and teach an intelligent design, but they don't want to say that it was God. But here was what kind of tipped me over the fence from intelligent designer to the God of the Bible I considered. There must be an intelligent designer based on creation. I know that. But if someone was intelligent enough to design us, wouldn't he not be loving enough to speak to us? That was my question. If he would design us, what plan did he have for us? 
Surely there would be no one that intelligent and obviously loving the environment he created for us to, to build this world and to build people with the personalities and the fun and the enjoyment and even the difficulties and trials. There's nobody out there that could do that that wouldn't give us some type of indication of what he would want and how we could enjoy the best that he's given for us. So I considered and I came again to believe that the God of the Bible is the creator God. He is a God that speaks. It's important we understand that, that he is a speaking God. The Bible regularly reminds us that his revelation is just part and parcel of his amazing grace to us. A lot of times we think of his grace and salvation, and we should, but also think about God's grace in the context of revelation. Now listen, God always does the speaking, and he chooses how he speaks. A lot of different ways he does that through general revelation. When Jesus was coming through, special revelation from the mouth of Jesus himself, doing miracles to teach us more about himself. And then, of course, through the, through the authors of the, of the biblical books that we have, God has chosen how he speaks in the Old Testament and the New Testament. So if you look at verse 1, that sundry times in diverse manners, what weird words, right? Sundry times. Really all that it means is uh, polumeros and polutropos. Again, those are those, uh, alliteration in Greek. And really all it means many different times in many different ways. That's all it really means. Many different times in many different ways. In fact, a lot of people will interpret it that way just to try to keep the similarities. Like in the Greek, she has many different times, many different ways. Sounds similar to, as you might read it, polymeros and polytropos uh, in, in the Greek language. And it was written so artfully. But the, but the point here is not necessarily how great of a writer this guy was. But the principle is that, is that all these different ways, the diversity. Again, we mentioned that dreams, visions, direct revelation. The contrast is this, all these different ways he has spoken, he has now spoken to us in one way. This, this is the biblical author saying, look at all the ways that God has spoken, and now he's funneling it down to the one person who is explaining it all, who is exemplifying it all, who is the prophecy fulfillment of it all, that is Jesus Christ. That's who it is. He's spoken to us in many different ways, many different uh, times, many different ways by the prophets and others. The prophets were divinely inspired spokesmen for God. They served him, and they, their spiritual wealth was proven all throughout the Old Testament. But like one man said, their ministry was partial and fragmentary. To each one was committed a certain measure of revelation, but in every case it was incomplete. There's not one prophet that knew the whole story. In fact, you might say, how do we know the whole story? Only because Jesus came and fulfilled the whole story. If we were living in time pre-Christ, we still wouldn't understand it all. I wonder what this guy meant by that. I don't know. We'll just have to wait and see. Sometimes we still do say that about future events, right? Anybody that can walk up and say, I know exactly what every single word of the book of Revelation means. Be wary of that guy. Because truth of the matter is, we can know what the great matter, a huge majority of it means. But there's going to be some parts of it that leave us scratching our head. Just like before Jesus Christ came the first time, some of the words of the prophets were not fully understood. Now, Jesus Christ is coming again, and I'm thankful for that, before the end time, that seven-year tribulation and so forth. But there are some things about that return that we're still scratching our heads on that will be fully understood once he comes again. So in case you're here this morning, you say, I've always had a struggle understanding that you are not alone. But it was God that spoke then. It's God that speaks now. That's what he's talking about. He used to speak to us, verse 1. Now in this day, he's speaking to us through Christ. Christ never came to abolish the Old Testament. He said that in Matthew 5, 17. He said the Old Testament is given for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in 2 Timothy three sixteen, 
And of course, in Romans 15, verse 4, he said, what was written in time past was written for our instruction. So the Old Testament has never been abolished by the New Testament. It was not written in the past. It's not just something old. It's not to, to be forgotten. No. Rather, the New Testament writers view the life, death, the resurrection, and exaltation of Jesus as uh, the fulfillment of this. Now, you might say, look in verse number two, hath in these last days. You say, oh, no, he's talking about the end times. No. Like almost every other New Testament writer, when they talk about the last days or the end times, they're talking about now that Jesus is here, he's fulfilling all the Old Testament. We have now begun the last days. So, Pastor, it's been, uh, what, 2,000 years or so since he said the last days have started? Right, but we're still in that second covenant or the New Testament, all right? Covenant Testament would be the same word. So, um, Christ, is basically, this is relating it. The Old Testament helps us understand the prophecies and the redemptive plan, all that happened, how it relates to Jesus Christ. And say, I've always wanted to learn more about that. Keep coming on Sunday mornings because Hebrews teaches us that. But then it talks a little bit about Jesus, about Jesus this morning. And that's what we're going to focus on really for the rest of the time that we have uh, is what the Bible says about Jesus Christ. First of all, it says this. Hath in these days, verse 2, spoken to us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. Jesus, unlike the prophets, never uttered these words. Thus saith the Lord. Jesus never said that because he was the Lord. Jesus never said the word of God came to me. Never said it because he was God. In the person of the Lord Jesus, we find a perfect expression of, of God himself. John chapter 1 verse 14 says the word was made flesh. The very word of God was made into flesh. Some people say, well, hey, putting God into a fleshly instrument, wouldn't that limit the revelation of God? Let me share with you a story that might help you with that. Dan Crawford was a missionary in Africa. He was one day sitting at the doorway of his tent writing a letter and a little boy came over and stood by him and watched him for a while thinking it was so weird and so strange because in that particular village, nobody wrote anything down. There was no known alphabet or anything like that. So he started watching the missionary and scratching his head and finally couldn't stand it anymore. And he said, what are you doing, white man? And the missionary looked up and he said, well, I'm writing a letter. I'm taking my thoughts and I'm putting them on paper. And the little boy thought for a little bit and this is what he said. He goes, oh, you're putting your thoughts in prison. <laughs> That's the way he understood it. You're putting your thoughts in prison. Right away, the missionary responded. He said, no, uh, no, 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 no. You're wrong. I'm not putting my thoughts into prison. I'm setting my thoughts free. Because we understand that would actually be the correct case. In writing a letter, we're expressing our thoughts and setting them free out of our mind. Some people say, oh, well, for God to, 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 to force himself into the body of Jesus Christ, why, that's limiting his revelation. Why didn't he just come in the shining glory of himself? And then we would understand all about him. Actually not. What he was doing when he came in the person of Jesus Christ was very much like putting your thoughts into a letter. He was giving freedom to express himself through Jesus Christ to the world around us. I understand God because of Jesus. And so do you. I wish I understood God more. Read about Jesus, understand Jesus, get to know Jesus, commune with Jesus. And as you understand Jesus, you are understanding God himself. Are you ever going to perfectly comprehend God this side of glory? No. In fact, you talk to me later about this, but I'm convinced even when we're in heaven, we won't fully comprehend him because he's too big for our minds to comprehend. And we'll constantly enjoy and, and rejoice in the mystery of who he is, I believe. He is 
called the radiance. We mentioned earlier the brightness of his glory. We, we did mention that he's the creator of the world. We've seen that in Colossians, also in John. We know that he is known as the creator. It's like, well, if we had to say one of the three uh, of the Godhead that created the world, all three were involved. But Jesus is given as the author of creation more often than any of the others. The Holy Spirit was definitely there. The Spirit of God moved upon the face of the water. God the Father is credited with the uh, creation of the world, but very often Jesus is known as the creator of the world. It said, by whom? Talking about his son. Also, he made the world. So Jesus is the creator. So we see that he's uh, the creator and then he's the brightness of his glory. I mentioned the Shekinah glory. That was the shining visible glory that was demonstrated in the majesty of God. At the Exodus, the, the, the tower, the pillar of cloud by day, the burning fire by night. At the dedication of Solomon's temple in 1 Kings chapter 8, it was the visible manifestation of God's glory. You know what they just called Jesus? What, what the Bible just referred to Jesus as? The visible manifestation of God's glory glory. Who is Jesus? The revealed God. He is God revealed to us. So he made the world as creator. He has an inherited claim and an inherent claim. He has an inherited claim because he's called, he is the heir of all things, right? The appointed heir of all things, but he also has an inherent claim because he created them. He made the world. So um, let me give you an example. When I die, my son will get everything, right? My wife, but of course, uh, eventually, my son will get all of the trinkets and things that I have accumulated. I am so sorry, Benaya, <laughs> but enjoy the junk that I have gathered throughout my life. He gets all my stuff. Now, let's say among my stuff is a pile of lumber. Let's say I'm one of those people who goes out and gets random lumber and, and cuts up pallets and whatever and stores just massive, and I get a barn to hold all of my lumber. I'm not that crazy yet, but see me in 15 years and I might have that barn. But I've got all this lumber and that's what I have collected and amassed. And that will all belong to Beniah when I die. However, even before I die, Beniah says, hey, dad, I want to go make some stuff with your lumber. I said, please do. There's just getting to be so much of it. And he takes the lumber and just because he's a cool kid and he's clever and he's smart, he goes and he builds a tiny home with the lumber that is in my barn. And uh, say, well, that's pretty cool. And we call it Benaiah's house because Benaiah built it, and he lives in that house, and he has a good time with that house. When I die, it is given to him along with all of the rest of the lumber in my barn. You would say, well, Benaiah kind of owns that house twice, doesn't he? Yes, because he inherited all the lumber from me. It was by right his, but also because he created it. It's also Now, if you're going to compare that to Jesus by having an inherent claim and then also uh, uh, inheritance, so you have inherited and an inherent claim, you have to take it a step farther than what Benaiah did. It would be as, as if Jesus created the lumber <laughs> and then built the house because he would own it that way too. So you see what I mean? So Jesus not only owns it as far as the inheritance, it has all belonged to him. He's the appointed heir. You want to learn some more about that? Go to the fourth and fifth chapter of the book of Revelation, and you'll see that as he's the only one able to open the scroll, he is the owner, the authorized owner of the entire creation. Talk a little bit more about his inheritance that way. But then you see that Jesus is God. I love how one man said it, God in focus. Think about that. When I think of God, it can be a little blurry, a little nebulous. He's big. He's giant. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He's everywhere at once. Blah. He's God. He's just this big, kind of nebulous being. Jesus kind of brings God into focus, and we can see a picture of who God is. We can understand God 
through Jesus, who also is God. We understand that. We're not taking away from that. But that's what it says here. It says that he is in the being in the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. Express image refers to something that is engraved or impressed. Like if you take something and you press, like the, the coin that you might have in your pocket or your purse, they're pressed to have the, the George Washington's face or Abe Lincoln's uh, profile, whatever the case may be, that is impressed. And so it says that he is the express image, that impressed engraving of God himself. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of of his being. You think about that. The one man, as he read this, he it may have been Spurgeon commented this. Each word pulsates with deity. <laughs> Sounds like a Spurgeon thing, doesn't it? That the brightness of his glory, the express image of his person. That's who Jesus is. Absolute God himself. The lines of deity have been reproduced in Jesus' humanity. So to find out what God is like, we just need to look at Jesus J.B. Phillips is the one who said that Jesus is God in focus. I say, well, why is that important to us today? It's very important to us today because in our day and age, tolerance is preached louder than anything else. Am I right? You must be tolerant. You must be accepting. You must be okay. Christians, we need to be loving. Somebody say amen to that or we just have to preach on that for the rest of their time. We need to be loving. We need to be kind. We need to be compassionate. There is no place in Jesus Christ followers to be harsh, condemning, or cruel. None of that. However, the problem with the tolerance preaching is that they would go so far as to occlude the truth. And they would say, you know, you have to be accepting of what I'm saying. I'm happy to open my mind to your point of view. I'm happy to listen to you and to show you respect. However, once you tell me that Jesus Christ is not God, that Jesus Christ is not central to all of living, that Jesus Christ is not who he says he is, then you're wrong. <gasps> Pastor, you can't declare anyone else wrong. You're supposed to be tolerant. That's the danger of tolerance, isn't it? Is that now I have to say, well, maybe Jesus isn't God because I don't want to offend you. That's wrong. Should I attack people and make fun of people and judge people because they're not like me? Never. But should I just say, well, I guess, you know, because I don't want to offend you, I'll just change the truth to make it more palatable for you? Never. Because the truth is the truth, whether we agree with it or not. Whether we know it or not, whether we like it or not, whether we agree with it or not, the truth will always be the truth. It doesn't matter. I have countless people, and this is just an easy to understand thing, countless people that I work with uh, on a day-in, day-out thing when, I, when I'm on the ambulance. There's people that I can tell the truth to and they don't believe me, but it doesn't matter if they don't believe me. The doctor will tell them the truth. Doctors have been to school a lot longer than I have, memorized a lot more things than I have about the human body, and they won't believe the doctor. Well, since they don't believe it, then, then that's just what that is. No. They're still sick. They still need to do what the doctor says to do. They still need to get the help they're supposed to get. Well, I don't believe any of that stuff. I think you all, I've heard people say, I think health care is a giant scam. Maybe some aspects of it, the financial aspect and insurance. I'm sure there's some things that are corrupt in there. But here's a test that is showing you absolute evidence that you need to take a medicine or you need to get some help right now. I don't believe it. It's all a big scam. You're just trying to take my money. Not really, because this is the truth. 
even if you refuse to believe it. The truth of the matter is that Jesus is God. He is the express image of God himself. And if we were to say, well, I tell you what, you just need to be more tolerant. No, 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 you must have authority in certain areas of the Bible without being a jerk, without being harsh. But we must be able to stand up and say the Bible teaches very clearly Jesus is God. And by the way, he's the only one. It's not like, well, Jesus can be God and Muhammad can be God and Buddha can be God and Joseph Smith can be God. Why? We can have all kinds of. No, 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 no. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. There is only one way. Hebrews claims that God spoke through his son. That's a complete revelation of himself. Now you think about, oh, the transfiguration is a beautiful picture. I don't want to get too deep into it. If you go to Matthew 17, don't turn to it right now unless you want to. Matthew 17 is a story of, of Jesus going on the Mount of Transfiguration and, uh, and this, the glory, a little bit of that Shekinah glory shone forth from Jesus. M- miraculous glory. Uh, you know what the disciples did? They hit the deck, right? They're like, ah, oh, we're going to die, right? I would think that too if I was hanging out with my teacher and he started glowing, right? I'm, I'm afraid. So you guys were afraid. Peter looks up, and only Peter would open his mouth, right? I would be the guy that would probably keep my mouth shut. Maybe, I don't know. Maybe I'd be Peter in this instance. But Peter opens his mouth. He sees, even though he'd never seen a person before, he knew who it was. This is Moses. This is Elijah. And there is Jesus, and they're all talking. Peter goes, let's build three tabernacles, one for Moses, one for Elijah, and one for Jesus. And nobody really, you ever, you ever said something, think it's a good idea, and nobody responds to you whatsoever? That happened to Peter that day. No one responded to Peter whatsoever, except for a voice from the clouds. Now, I want you to get this picture. Moses, who's the representation of what? The law, right? The law came through Moses. Elijah, who's the representation of what? The prophets, one of the greatest prophets that ever existed, that ever lived in Israel's time period. We have the law, we have the prophets, and we have Jesus. Why, it, it, why is this important as we go through the book of Hebrews? Because he's showing you that the law came before in prophets, but now it's coming through Jesus. Who is better than the prophet? Jesus is better than the prophet. At the transfiguration, Matthew 17, verse 5, we have Elijah, we have Moses, we have the disciples, you have Peter opening his big mouth, saying we should build three tabernacles, and God says, listen, even though I've got Elijah here, even though I've got Moses here, you know what God said? He said, this is my beloved son, hear ye him. Well, why not Elijah? Well, why not Moses? Because Jesus is more than Elijah. He's more than the prophet. Jesus is more than Moses. He's more than the perfect fulfillment of the law. Jesus is the son of God himself. Beautiful picture of the transfiguration, especially as you read it in light of Hebrew, that Jesus is more than laws and prophets. Never, ever allow any religious leader or any religious teaching to diminish who Jesus Christ is and the powerful words of Jesus Christ. Our words, they're legislative policy enforcers. That's all our words can be. His words are executive, authoritative. He says, let there be light. Light just happened. Not just brightness, but like ultraviolet light, the different uh, frequencies of light, all the things that come with light, lasers and so on and so forth, at his word. That same word is used to describe Jesus Christ. As the Son of God, the Lord Jesus is the executor of God's will as far as the created universe is concerned. Now notice what else it says. The express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power. Upholding all things indicates at least three truths. We have upholding all things. The first truth that we see is that the Son is distinct from creation itself. Now, hang on. 
if he's what's upholding all creation, he cannot be created. Is this difficult to comprehend? I don't think so. I mean, this is a fairly, uh, uh, the third one might be a little harder, okay? First one's easiest, second one's medium, third's hard. So get your minds ready. I'm just letting you know that now. Took me a few, few times understanding the third one myself. The first one I feel like is fairly easy to grasp. If you are the creator, you're not dependent on the creation. You don't need it. So he exists outside of the creation. Those that would say that Jesus is created, there are several religious denominations that teach that. Steer clear of those teachings because Jesus, read through Hebrews and show them this. Jesus was not created. He is the one that upholds it by his power. He is God the Son. So it's distinct from creation. He's not dependent on it, but creation is dependent on him. And Colossians says, by him all things consist. He's upholding all things. He's keeping it all together. You want to go into like the micro, micro, not like the macro of the universe, but the micro, the atomic thing. You ask people, I want, I want to find the smartest man in the world who understands gravity, who understands atomic theory better than anyone else. I'm going to get the best mind, physicist and nuclear physicist. All the, I want to give them all the other, and I want them to come up with an answer for me. What keeps the atom together? What is it? They'll be able to talk about forces. They'll be able to talk about uh, the way things spin and gravity and things, but you cannot. Nobody fully understands gravity. Nobody fully understands what keeps the atom together. If you ask me, it is only the will of God itself. Even if we understood the name of it or, or we had a name for that force, we'd understand it would still be God himself. Secondly, upholding all things means this. The sustaining uh, of God reflects a positive agency of moving creation toward its design goal. So in other words, it's not that God is just withholding destruction that the earth deserves. And sometimes we think that, right? Well, I can't wait till God comes and just wipes off all the bad people on the earth. I just can't wait till we have this new heaven and new earth. It's going to be great. Yes, our, our spirit kind of grown for that perfect righteousness. We have to understand that God is moving the earth toward a designed end from the very beginning. He is upholding all things. For what reason? Right? He has a purpose and a plan. I wish God would just come back today. It'd be great if Jesus came back today. For many of us, we'd be in heaven that much sooner. We'd be to be with Jesus that much sooner. But what about those who have not yet heard of Jesus? What about those who will accept Christ today? Those who will accept Christ tomorrow? Hey, Everything is moving toward his end goal. I told you to be careful with number three. Here it is. Number three, it involved divine concurrence with secondary causes in that God is imminent in the operation of natural phenomena according to natural law, although that's not precluding miracles. All right? Divine concurrence with secondary causes. When things happen, even though God may not be doing them, he is concurrent with them because he is over all things. In other words, he is imminent, not imminent, right? Imminent means it's coming soon. Imminent means that you're in and through it all. So God is in every rock. That's pantheism. We don't worship rocks as if they were God. That's not what we're talking about. But that he is involved imminently, thoroughly invested and moving within his creation. This is amazing to me. I, uh, I could probably count up my friends, right, and acquaintances and coworkers, people that I know, people that I care about, they've done, like, sociological studies on this, and there's probably going to be a group of, like, two, three, four people that I'm really, really invested in, right? And there's going to be another group of people that I'm kind of invested in, you know, in my church family, so some people at work, but not all people at work, that I'm somewhat invested in. Like, I really want to see those people do well. But it gets bigger and bigger, but then there's going to be a point where I don't even know so many people, like if you were to uh, try to say, how many people do you know that you would recognize their face, that you would be able to say their first name, or that you could at least say that you know them in some regard? I don't know, a few thousand max. There's what, seven to eight billion people on this planet? You know what blows my mind? 
that when I pray, God hears me. And when you pray, God hears you. And when a Chinese person prays on the other side of the globe, God hears him and her. And an Australian prays with their weird accent, God understands them. Isn't that great? All the languages of all the world and all the different places of all the world, God hears. He is everywhere involved in his creation. This defies the idea when it says that God upholds his nature. It defies the idea that God is just a giant watchmaker. John Calvin said that God is no idle God. Uh, Thistleton is another theologian that said, Through Christ, God keeps the cosmos from falling into the abyss of non-being. There's this idea that God is this watchmaker and that he created uh, uh, the world like this really intricate watch, right? By the way, it would be very intricate. This is the intelligent design theory, right? Before we step into the involvement of God. Theistic evolutionists would go with the watchmaker theology. And they would say, well, God is a, is a crazy intelligent watchmaker and a crazy powerful God. He designed the watch. He designed the world system and the universe. And he, he wound it up and then he's watching it as it ticks on by. If that's what God did, who are we to say otherwise? But God revealed in the Bible through his word, through special revelation, he said this, God is imminently involved in his creation. He's here. He's not just watching the watch tick. He's involved with every gear that is turning. He's involved with every movement that is happening. Yes, he did a lot of things that are just going on in their order as he created in the hydrologic system, weather patterns, things like that. But he is definitely involved in his creation. And then... The last two things here, and we'll be done just finishing up verse number three. He's the one that upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had by himself purged our sins. He's not just the creator. He's the redeemer. In a single sentence, we're taken from creation all the way to Calvary. Did you catch that? Talking about uh, who this person is, the creator by whom he made all the world. But before the sentence ends... By, him, by himself purged our sins. If you know the story of Jesus, he was born of a virgin. He fulfilled dozens, I can't remember the exact number, but dozens of prophecies on his birth, with his birth alone. He lived a sinless life. People can't do that. You're right. In fact, the Bible is clear about that. The revelation of God said that no person is sinless. None of us. Even you, especially me. And especially you. Come on, let's be honest. No, we're, we're sinners. How can you say that Jesus lived a sinless life? Because he was God, wrapped in human flesh. They did come who was born of a virgin. Well, that's impossible. You're getting the point, okay? He was born impossibly. He lived impossibly. And then he went to the cross as an innocent man. You don't have to live very long in this life to realize injustices happen. But Jesus took the greatest injustice of all time on his shoulders very purposefully. He bore all the sins of the world, past, present, and future, on his shoulders that day on the cross. You think the greatest agony was the crown of thorns being pressed into his brow? You think the greatest agony was the cat of nine tails that ripped his flesh off his ribs? You think the greatest agony was when they beat him, they punched him in the face, and they spit upon him? You think the greatest agony was when he had to pull himself up by the giant metal spikes that were in his metacarpal, pulling himself up just to grab some more air before it fell back down to not be able to breathe again. You think that was the greatest agony of the cross? I tell you, the greatest agony, I believe, is when Jesus cried out. The only words of torment that he uttered, he didn't talk about his hands. He didn't talk about his brow. He didn't talk about the difficulty breathing. He didn't talk about the blood that was running down. You know what he said? Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? When he was ripped apart from the Godhead and he was separated. 
that God the Father had to turn his back on himself, his own son, God the Son, and God the Father were at odds as Jesus bore the weight and the penalty of our sin. He died that day, physiologically proven by the physicians of that day. The blood and the water came out when they punctured his pericardial sac. He was dead. His human body ceased to exist. If he wasn't God, that would be the end of the story. But the reason he went to the cross, much like the Passover in time past predicted, that would be a perfect spotless lamb whose blood would have to be shed. It was wrong. How cruel this, that God would ask those people to kill a baby lamb, uh, an innocent lamb. Uh, that had, it was perfect. It could have been used for a number of things. Well, why would you kill that baby lamb? It would literally be like some of these kids, the future farmers of America, that have this perfect lamb that they, is spotless. It is clean. There's nothing wrong with this lamb. Man, take one of the other lambs. This is my prized lamb. No, God said to take that lamb, to kill it. For what reason? Just to shed its blood and put it on the doorpost. It seems a little sick. It seems a little sadistic. He said, well, how cruel is that of God? He had to show you just how disgusting sin is. The blood of an innocent had to cover up your sin, your rebellion against God. It also paints a picture from when Jesus was hanging on the cross. His body, I looked for a picture of Jesus hanging on the cross. The internet wouldn't even, wouldn't even give anything to me because <laughs> everything looked just like a nice, happy dude with a little bit of blood running down his face. And I thought if I could get an accurate depiction of Jesus on the cross, it would be inappropriate to show in church. The Bible said that his body was so marred, you couldn't even recognize it was a human being. It was a piece of torn flesh hanging up on the cross. Why did he do that? Same reason he told you to kill a spotless, innocent lamb and shed his blood. Because without the shedding of blood, there is no remission for sin. Church can't clean your sin. Your grandparents can't clean your sin. Nothing can clean your sin. Only the blood of Jesus Christ. By some of our songs, we celebrate the blood of Christ. How sick are you guys? No, we need the blood of Jesus Christ to be saved from our sin. And that's what Jesus is as the Redeemer, not just the Creator, but the Redeemer. He purged our sins. Who can measure, Mr. Phillips said, the number or nastiness of our own sin? God has declared that all of our unrighteousness he bears, and that all of our righteousness is in his sight as a filthy rag. If that's the case, what must he think of our sins? But Jesus made a purification for sin by dying on the cross. But I want you to know something as you finish out this verse. God never leaves Jesus on the cross. Now you might say, well, I've got this, this crucifix, uh, or you say, I've got this nativity scene where he's being held by his mama as a helpless baby, or I've got this crucifix where Jesus is suffering on the cross. And I understand they're to remind us of certain moments in history, but I want you to know that right now he is not on the cross. He is not in the tomb. God never left him there. And every time that you'll hear the story of Jesus told in Scripture, he's never left on the cross. It always talked about how that he is coming again, that as God, he resumed his rightful inheritance. He ascended back up to heaven, sitting on the right hand of God, waiting to come again. The creator and sustainer became the sin bearer. Think about this. In order to create the universe, he only had to speak. In order to maintain and guide the universe... He only had to speak. But in order to put away our sin once and for all, he had to die on the cross of Calvary. It is staggering to think that the sovereign Lord was stooped to become the sacrificial lamb. Isaac Watts spent the hymn talking about Jesus and his incredible love. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. 
So my questions for you, we'll, we'll cover this last portion and be done. But I want you to consider at least one thing this morning. If you're here this morning and you might say, well, I'm a good person. I go to church. I um, have a relationship with God. Or you might say, I have nothing to do with God. Whatever your situation may be this morning. My question, Jesus died for you. Have you accepted his free gift of salvation? You might say, oh, preacher, I did not know the truth, but the truth still exists. And now you do know. Would you accept him? Oh, preacher, I just denied the truth, but it's still true. I encourage you to stop denying the truth and go to the Savior who wants to save you. The most inc incredible thing about the cross and the empty tomb is the love that it demonstrates. Jesus never, ever Yes, hell is real. He talked about hell. Yes, heaven is real. He talked about heaven. Yes, the cross is real. The tomb is real. That's documented historical truth. And, and the Bible declares it so very uh, readily. But here's the truth. God loves you so much. He doesn't want you to be apart from him. He literally paid your pardon. He literally took your place. If you were to stand at the courtroom of an almighty God and you were to try to present your own righteousness, the only thing he'd be able to say to you is guilty, depart from me forever in that terrible place called hell. And that was that was. That was unacceptable to God. He knew that's what he would have to do. So instead of letting that happen for every single soul that he created and loved to send off to that terrible place, he said, I'm going to make a way. I'm going to send my son Jesus. I'm going to die on the cross, shed my blood, and bear the sin of the world so that any person who will accept the gift of Jesus Christ, when I, they stand in my courtroom and they present their righteousness. And just before I say guilty, they say, wait, not my righteousness, but I present the blood of Jesus Christ. I've, I've put my trust in him. I've asked him to save me. I asked him, I said, Lord, I believe what you've done and I'm trusting you. I'm trusting your sacrifice. I want to be right with you. I'm accepting Jesus and I'm trusting him alone for salvation. They can present that. And then God will say, innocent, cleared of all charges because Jesus bears that person's sin. Realize I'm not going to heaven because I'm a preacher. I'm not going to heaven because I'm better than the next guy. I'm not going to heaven because my good works outweigh my bad. I'm only going to heaven because when I stand before God one day, I'll be able to say, all I can claim is the righteousness of Jesus. That's all I can claim. It's nothing about me. It's only him. If you're here this morning and you're trying to get there any other way, my heart's plea for you is to put your trust in Christ alone because that is the only way. Jesus is the only way. Read through the book of Hebrews. Read through the book of Romans. Read through the life of Jesus. Read through the book of Acts. Read through your Bible and you'll see that Jesus is the only way to heaven. And what if there's a preacher who's more eloquent than you? There's a lot of them out there. What if there's people that have more of a, a show before church? There's definitely people that have that. What if there's people that are more impressive and have more hair on their head? Now you're meddling, all right? There's going to be people like that. It's not the truth because I say it is. It's the truth because this book says it is. And I encourage you to get this book out and read it and know it. And if you're here today and you're without Christ, would you please put your trust in Jesus Christ today? My other question is for those who've already accepted Christ. How often do you live in awareness of this amazing gift? How often do you let it buckle your knees, bring tears to your eyes, and just put your hand up and say, thank you, Lord, for my salvation. I don't deserve it. I haven't earned it. But I'm going to heaven because of Jesus. Live in light of that amazing gift. The last thing we see in this verse is that we have an enthroned Lord. He sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. This sitting down is the posture of rest. This is not because he's tired, but a satisfaction in the finished work, just like he rested on the seventh day of creation. The work of redemption has been completed. Don't ever think for a moment. Well, I asked Jesus to save me, but then I did some really bad stuff, so maybe I lost it. No, no, no. Jesus did everything that was needed on the cross. You have to be, you realize how silly it sounds 
to say, God, I want you to forgive all of my sins, past, present, and future. I put my trust in you. Please save me from my sin. And he accepts you because whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But the next time you do one sin, you say, oh, no, I've lost it. <laughs> How strong do you think his redemption was anyways? He'll save you for all of your sin. I'm thankful for that. That there's nothing that I could do to lose my salvation because I'm trusting in Jesus Christ. I'm kept by God's power, not by my own. I got to read to you a Spurgeon quote. If you don't know who Charles Spurgeon is, he is one of those eloquent people. And I love what he said about this. Jesus is God's own son. What do I know about that wondrous truth? If I were to try to explain it and to talk about the eternal filiation, I would only conduct you where I would soon be entirely out of my depth. And very likely I would drown in all that I could tell you in floods of words. Deity is not to be explained, but to be adored. The sonship of Christ is to be accepted as a truth of revelation, to be apprehended by faith, though it cannot be comprehended fully by the understanding. And as followers of Christ, we may very easily assent to the truth, but deny it in our practice. Oh, I know that God knows, and I know he can control, and I know that uh, he, he's, he is imminent in his creation, that he is always giving grace, but then we can act each day that our financial or our family or our medical problems are beyond his reach. Now, we're not saying that God is your genie and everything you say he must do, but we are saying that God is in control and you ought to bring your desires to him. You ought to bring your, your difficulties to him. You're supposed to go to him, recognizing his sovereign control. Is he going to use financial counselors? Sure. Is he going to use therapists? Yes. Is he going to use a lot of other things? Yes, he can and he will. But go to him first. Recognize the sovereign authority in your life. If Jesus could create the universe, then no part of life is out of his control. In fact, even though these people can be very well used in your life, just remember that no expert, no pastor, no professor, no doctor, no lawyer, no financial advisor knows more about your security and ultimate well-being than Jesus does. All those people should be consulted when needed. But just remember, the person who knows the most is Jesus. Go to him. Talk to him in prayer. Go to him for advice. Ask for wisdom. We talked about that in James chapter 1. Get the wisdom and grace of God. From that perspective, you can evaluate all the other wisdom that's presented to you and it will help you. So my encouragement to you as we close our sermon this morning, as we're learning about the greatness and the exaltedness of Jesus Christ, if you're not saved, I encourage you today. May today be the day you ask Jesus to save you from your sin. Become a child of God. The Bible, when he was talking to Nicodemus, he was term being born again. I encourage you to make that decision today. So what steps do I have to take? Does a pastor have to bless me? Do I have to have holy water? No, 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 no coming to him, just talking to him. He hears you. I was 14, and I understood. I said, God, I'm living a lie. I'm going to church. I'm being a good person. But I've never believed that my sin would take me to hell. But I understand that's what your Bible says. So please forgive me of my sin. Take me to heaven when I die, based upon your promise. And guess what? He did. He saved me that day, because whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's what I hope for all of you. And then Christians... Spend some time getting to know God by getting to know Jesus, who is God revealed. Get to know him. Pray. Talk to him. Read your Bible. Oh, yeah, I'm not a great Christian. I don't read my Bible and pray every day. Or I don't need to go to church because I read my Bible and pray every day. No, 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 no. You read your Bible and you pray so you get to know Jesus. Not to impress anybody. Not to check off a list. Get to know Jesus. Because the more you know him, the more you understand God, the more you understand life.